to Humans of Magic, the show that goes deep into the lives of our favorite magic players. I'm your host, James Sue. Every episode, I sit down with a guest and try to have an interesting conversation with him on a personal level. This is not a show about magic strategy, rather, it's about life. We will talk about anything and everything. If you're interested in the power perspective and getting to know the motivations behind some of the best magic players on the planet, then you've come to the right place. Before we get started, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself. I've been a competitive magic player for a long time. I recently wrote a book about my own experiences with the game called Magic the Addiction. I was so involved with the game that I had to evaluate whether it was good or bad for me. After much soul searching, I've climbed out of my ruts. Now I want to study how other players view the game, and that's where Humans of Magic comes in. This week, I'm talking to my Canadian friend on the West Coast, Matt Pavlik. Matt is one of my best friends, and was the very first guy I met when I started playing competitive magic. If you've ever frequented the MTG The Source forums, you may also know Matt by his online handle, SDE Matt. He started the Everyday Eternal podcast, and has produced some high-quality content over the years. More importantly, Matt is funny, has things figured out, and is super mature and insightful for his age. He has transformed his life for the better based on that understanding. So in this talk, you're going to hear Matt's philosophy on how he handles life and how magic has played a role for him over the years. Oh yeah, he doesn't sugarcoat things either, so if you're easily offended by the truth, then consider yourself warned. One more thing before we start. Throughout the talk, we use a term called pimping. In the context of the magic universe, pimping refers to the art of acquiring expensive and rare magic cards for one's deck. It is the equivalent of buying nice rims for your car. Totally cool but ultimately unnecessary. Just wanted to clarify this piece of lingo in case you listen to us talk and think, what the heck are they talking about when they say pimping? Anyways, on with the show. Here is my chat with Matt Pavlik. I am here with uh, one of my favorite guys in the whole world, Matt Pavlik. Matt, how's Ooh, it going? That's a, I'm good. That's a that's a tall order to. I know. I'm I'm setting the expectation super high, and I hope that you do not disappoint. I have been told that I never disappoint. Excellent. Well, I just I just think that it's good whenever I interview a good friend because you know whether it's you or. Or Julian, or someone I already know. There's, it's a little bit more comfortable because we're all like we're doing this over Skype, and we can't see each other's um, facial expressions and all that stuff. So, you know, I, I can I, imagine them though. It's... Yeah, I can imagine them. Yeah, I, I try to put a picture of them in my mind. And, um, but yeah, man, how how are things? Um, I would say depressingly busy, but that's you know that's the life of a it's the life of a student, right? So. Well, I mean, walk me through that. I mean, what what's it like for you right now? What are you um, what are you studying? Just for the listeners, you know, like like sure. What's, what's so going on? my name's Matt, and I'm a good friend of James's. Uh, however, I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, and right now I'm just 
wrapping up a degree in dentistry at the University of British Columbia. So my day typically consists of seeing patients and then doing work on my own in simulation to try and improve my clinical skills. And basically that turns into, plus studying, and that turns into about 16-hour days where I don't play a lot of Magic anymore. Yeah, that sounds pretty intense. Uh, So you're pretty close to uh, completing your studies, right? Yeah, about a year to go. We'll be we'll be good. Okay, I think I've known you always as a as an excellent student, um, but I'm guessing that now the the demands of the ac- academic life are probably the highest it's been for you, right? Yeah, I would definitely say that the uh, the demands are very high, uh, but the expectation is that everyone will succeed. So I'm not too worried about. I don't need to get uh, 99% anymore or 100% because I know we're just going to get through it. So that feels a little bit better. The stress is high, but for different reasons. Has that been different for you in the past? Like you've always wanted to get straight A's before and you would you would uh, chastise yourself if you didn't get, um, you know, like a, uh, a perfect grade? I Yeah, I would say that I didn't strive for straight A's. I strived for 100%. Uh, and that was mostly because when you gun for something like med school or dental school, the the competition is fierce and the rewards are very high. So there are many different people going into the field for many different reasons, and your your competition is, like I said, it's it's very very high. So not only for myself and seeking that personal satisfaction of perfection, but also to beat out other competitors. Right, it's a combination of both. But I, I was wondering, though, how your, I guess, the desire to be the best, I mean, whether it's academics or, or elsewise, when do you think you, you, had that, you had that mindset? Has it been with you since the beginning? or? I would say ever since my parents stopped loving me. That's when, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say that definitely since elementary school, that has always been the case. Why do you think that is? Was there some kind of incident that that led to it? Or? Well, partially because my parents didn't show me enough attention and uh, I wanted to strive to succeed to perhaps gain their favor, but it didn't work. So I just did it for for myself then. Sad, but true. I see. Uh, you mean attention to you as opposed to your older brother? Is that right? Or um, I would say more in terms of trying your hardest, but then saying good job, whether or not, say, my brother got a B or a C versus me getting 100% uh, with the same level of uh, attention. So consistently trying to perhaps renew those accomplishments, every report card, to maybe see if there would be a break in that attention cycle, and the attention still stayed very low. So Mm. that's uh, the sad, if we we were sitting in a chair, a long couch, and I was... Uh, listing off why I think I'm uh, successful in uh, doing well. I think it has to do with my own personal drive to to impress myself and people like my parents. Well, I don't think that's sad. I mean, it's just it's it's a it's very factual, right? I mean, I think we all are who we are because of how we're raised and how we're brought up in our our environment, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think a lot of people just want to sugarcoat it and say. Oh, and maybe perhaps don't introspect enough as to why they're doing certain things, but I definitely know that that was part of it. Yeah. And that's why I've always loved talking to you, because you have this sort of awareness, and you're, as I like to say, wise beyond your years. I mean, you're still in your early 20s, and, you know, just from the outside, it feels like you've got most things figured out, so. 
It doesn't seem. It's true. I, I think I'm just, I feel in a way trapped by my years because it's like, oh, I want to proceed. I want to progress. But certain things like, say, being in a rigid school schedule or being in a job or a situation means I'm almost serving like a mandatory minimum punishment where it's like, oh, nope, you got to be this age to pass go. And, you know, depending on how your mental state is, you don't always feel like kind of staying where you are. Do you often feel that way that you're sort of underestimated by people because of your age or or uh, or um, discriminated against almost? 100% always. Um, I would say that uh, I've done very well for myself and I've worked very hard. And I think consistently a lot of people say, oh, you didn't have to work for it. Or, oh, no, this is really isn't the case. Or, uh, you know, they just don't want to maybe believe it or acknowledge it. So, for example, certain things like buying luxury goods or going to certain places where perhaps successful people are quite a bit older, perhaps in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, they're quite surprised to see somebody my age kind of doing the same things as they are or doing whatever. And, I mean, perhaps it's jealousy or disbelief, but it does come up quite often, yes. Mm -hmm. Does that annoy you or bother you in, in, in some sense? I'm flattered that I could aggravate someone... Uh, who has spent their entire lives working uh, in the sense that I've, I've, I'm going to achieve more than what they've done because I've worked harder, perhaps. And it, it, does it bother me? No, not anymore. I think in the beginning it was always like, oh, why does nobody take me seriously? And now I've kind of switched more to the attitude of, fuck everyone, I'm going to do whatever I want. And if you don't like it, well, we can talk about it or just too bad. That's actually a good perspective to have, and this is why I say that you're you're wise behind your years because you 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 kind of realize this already. Because I think it, what people I think people always care what other people think for some reason. There's this adage that like, oh, I don't want to wear this outside because what will people think, or I don't want to have this thing because what will people think? And it's like, well, people that you don't know don't matter, and. It, that's all it is like somebody on the street who's like oh maybe that jacket doesn't go with that whatever it's like well you can't afford it anyway so what do, what the fuck do i care what they think? <laughs> so so reasonably if you're not in my life i don't care what you think and if you are in my life it's, it's quite possible that i still don't care what you think because i'm i need to do this for me and if you have an opinion then obviously like i said we can discuss it like adults and we can rationalize any sort of decision that we make how did you come to this learning or realization was there a specific time or place that that it happened that you you just kind of understood that um i would say it was probably a few years ago i kind of came into i think it was probably when i was applying for dental schools i guess three or four years ago where i got to the point where i had done so many applications and so many everythings that i started showing up to interviews just not giving a fuck I would wear whatever I wanted. I know they would say like, oh, it's a formal and I would just wear the loudest dress shirt with a mismatched tie, mostly because they were nice and expensive mm -hmm. and I felt good in them and I didn't care that it wasn't the dress code that everybody was doing, which was the baby's first black suit and tie with a white shirt. And I just didn't think that was interesting or fun or it really mattered because what I figured was that I was going to walk in there. I wore a suit and I was just going to give it my best. And I was going to tell them what I had to offer. And if they didn't like what I had to offer, I know that I had good stuff and I was going to go somewhere else. And at the end, it ended up working out for me. And it was more like, I guess what I can say is that it was like when I was, when I was young, uh, 
I always thought what people, I was always thinking about what people were thinking about me. And I was bullied quite a bit throughout school for being, you know, the smart kid of this, of that, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was controlling my life to the point where perhaps it was a little bit too much. So, you know, the kind of fake it till you make it um, statement really rang true when I just kept, you know, faking that confidence. And eventually I just decided like, hey, this is really great. Why are, Why am I not actually like this? And then I just decided that that's how I wanted to conduct myself. And since then, that's how I've conducted myself. And it's worked out very well for me. So the unreal became real. Like you, you were exactly. trying to fake it until you made it. And then you realize I just don't give a fuck. And, and I am who I am. And, and I've sort of, and yeah, and I am who I am, right? And it's worked out way better. Mm-hmm. And I think it's extended into your personal relationships with people as well, right? Because when we were meeting, um, Without going to specifics, like I, I feel like yeah, let's definitely not go into specifics. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, I feel like uh, you've sort of realized this in all avenues of your life, like relationships with with people, romantic or otherwise. Like you, you're just trying to be yourself. Yeah, I think there were a lot of situations where early on I was thinking, oh, I should do this or I shouldn't do this because somebody might think this or whatever, or there was an expectation, and reasonably. I was sick of having to deal with those expectations. So now that I have gone out on my own and just kind of done my own thing, it's been way better because, you know, you actually find somebody that you agree with, not necessarily somebody who you think you agree with or has qualities that you think or you or you bring out certain qualities of yourself for that person because you think that's what they would like. So you can just be yourself and you can do whatever you want and it's more comfortable because you're not playing this this character for someone else. Right. Do you think that we all try to play as characters at, at as a whole, like as a society or most people? Of course. I think that there are masks that we all wear for different aspects of our lives. Uh, like, you know, there's the, say for example, there's the school James and the work James and the James and that is with his fiance James and the Vancouver James versus the Beijing James and 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 I would say that everyone has that very few people are are as raw and real as they are with themselves as they are with everyone else because we're kind of taught to temper those feelings because of what other people think so would I I mean I think I do the same thing even now because maybe perhaps people I don't know you know, swearing off the handle and and talking as I do to somebody that I don't know, like, for example, a patient is perhaps a little bit unprofessional as opposed to with my friends where I can say let loose and say, you know, fuck this, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that kind of that kind of attitude. So I think the only true self that you have is the one that you are when you are with no one. That is where you are the most real, or at least you hope that that would be the case. And it's hard too, man. I mean, sometimes we are just creating these masks so much that we don't even know ourselves what's real and unreal. Like, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, sometimes I have different, um, maybe it's a mask, maybe it's just a gear, like when I'm at work or when I'm talking to you right now. And I like to think I'm the same person, but I don't know. And, and, and in the end, I kind of think that they're all just parts of me, but it's, it's sometimes hard to, to differentiate. So... Well, you're all the same. Think of it this way. If, if you think of these personalities or these particular traits that you bring out as masks, you're all the same performer, right? So it's all just it's all just certain aspects of your personality that you choose to bring out 
like tools and a toolkit. So, I mean, going back to the the interviews where you're wearing the the loud shirt and trying to subvert what their expectations were, do you think that w- that's also a form of rebellion or? Um, I think rebellion, perhaps better replaced by not so subtle fuck you. Um, <laughs> because here's the thing. I think a lot of people have expectations that things need to be a certain way because it's a certain profession or a certain this or a certain that. And no, it doesn't have to be – nothing has to be the way that we expect it to be. We can have whatever we want as a society. We can choose to have certain things or not if we all decide that as the way – like we can decide that – we don't want to have homelessness and we can make a plan to solve these problems. But because there's not enough political will or societal will or cultural will or whatever we choose or choose, we do choose or do not choose to do certain things. So I think by me coming in and saying, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. Um, I'm trying to, yeah, maybe rebellion, but, uh, to show that I have, perhaps some particular qualities of confidence as well as knowledge to say that, hey, I'm here to make a statement. You better listen. Mm-hmm. So Matt, are you okay if we uh, kind of uh, switch gears a little bit and go into the bit of your backstory? Yeah. So I guess it depends where we want to start. Yeah. So maybe I'll just ask, um, tell me a little bit about, I mean, you, you touched on a, a lot already, but just kind of what it was like for you growing up in in Vancouver, and maybe how you first initially got into the game of magic. So, gr- so I grew up in the suburbs around Vancouver, uh, so not directly in Vancouver, but uh, I grew up uh, in a normal, kind of quiet little neighborhood, and went to a smaller elementary school, and magic was a game that kind of the older kids played, uh, kind of the grade sixes and sevens, when I was in about grade two or three, my brother one time came home with a copy of Coral Eel from Portal, Portal 1, mm. 1998. Okay. And he's like, hey, I found this new game called Magic. And I said, what is it? So we started talking about it and trying to play. We had no idea how to play. So we kind of looked it up and tried to figure it out. This is before we had the internet. So we tried to talk to the kids, uh, managed to get a hands on a rule book, tried to figure it out. Uh, at the same time, I was playing Pokemon, actually. Playing Pokemon. How does one play Pokemon? I don't even fucking know. <laughs> but we were collecting, we were collecting the cards. And well, that, that, a, is, that is playing Pokemon, right? Gotta collect them all. So Exactly. So, But then what happened was there were kids were fighting over the cards. And anyway, so Pokemon was a fucking disaster at our school. So basically they banned them. They said, hey, don't bring them to school. So I had to switch to Magic. So what I did is I sold out of my Pokemon cards. And I bought into some Magic stuff. So... Uh, the first time I actually purchased cards was my father took us to the local hobby store and purchased uh, some Portal 1, some Unglued, which I didn't know at the time wasn't tournament legal, and um, some sleeves and etc. And we just tried to build decks. So we did our best, but we had no idea. We used to play, because one land per turn was so slow, um, we used to play that in the first three turns, if you had any land cards in your hand, you could just put them all on the table. <laughs> Being seven or eight years old, it's very, you know, the attention span of one land per turn, and I want to cast Crawl Worm just six turns. Six turns is forever. I want to cast Crawl Worm on turn two. Come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's how we started playing. And uh, I played very casually, um, Kind of in the late, you know, middle part of elementary school to the later part of elementary school, and the 
the time that I actually started getting really involved uh, and actually playing in a more organized way and kind of really learning the rules was grade six and grade seven, where I met uh, James Onions, actually, when I was in grade seven. So uh, for the listeners who have no idea who this fucking person is, James is a mutual friend of ours from Vancouver, and uh, he actually went to high school with my brother. So he and my brother uh, got along fine, but uh, James and I really hit it off, and we started playing Legacy uh, because that was the that was the band list uh, that the local store was using, and the local store was called Mishra's Game Factory, which I thought was pretty pretty great, and that's some place that James actually played. I'm sure you remember. Oh yeah, I remember that place. Uh, I didn't actually play Magic in that store, but I do remember that they had all the all the games, and uh, back when I was on the the evil game known as Star Wars CCG, I used to go there to buy buy stuff. So, yeah, it was a shitty, dumpy old store with in an industrial area at the time. And the only thing that was kind of around there, there was a there was a temple next door. I think it was some. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if it was a Hindu temple or a uh, some sort of uh, other Eastern religion, but. Um, Temple next door, and they were always doing something. And there was a pizza place across the street, and that place was only open because of all the magic players on Friday night. <laughs> I would order pizza because that place closed down. I'm not kidding you. Six months after the store folded up and moved. So anyway, so we used to go there all the time and play in the tournaments on Friday night. So our parents would drive us in for the I think it was 6:30 start time. So hit rush hour traffic, try to get there, get dropped off. Uh, play some Legacy, got absolutely spanked every time we showed up for the first year. <laughs> Talk about a learning great, curve, yeah. Yeah, it was a very, it was the most competitive store in the city, pretty much it was the only store in the city that ran tournaments regularly. And they always lasted way too late, so we would get there at 6 or 6.30, and I think it would start, and then we would leave at 10, because that was the latest that our parents would allow us to stay. So you only got to play maybe like three or four rounds, right? Yeah, we usually played two to three rounds because they were always stretched out because the uh, the guy who was running the tournaments, John, God, John was awful. Like, he would just, like, put on a movie and then he would, like, sit and read a magazine and the round would be over for 20 minutes and he'd be like, oh, fuck, I guess you're starting the next round. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> the guy was such a grouch, too. He was awful. Uh, you know, you're you know, a 13-year-old kid, 12-year-old kid trying to buy cards and the guy's just like, ah, get out of here. And, like, anyway, back in the day when Underground Seas were 25 bucks, you know, Ah, those Uh, were the days. (laughs) Yeah, so those were good times, and even then I couldn't afford it because I was uh, on a on a small allowance. So right, the shoestring budget. And and how did you guys? I have two questions. Um, Why is it that you and James Onions hit it off? I'll ask that first. I think he was the only person. I mean, apart from our personalities, in terms of him also being another smart guy, and you know, him enjoying magic. he was he was uh, he was a very competent player and he knew a lot about magic, and I was I I knew a little bit about magic, but I was so eager to learn more. So I think together we formed a good team of like you know researching decks and and stuff and looking into the format and the cards and trading and I don't know I think it was just the right time where I was looking to really jump in and he was looking for I guess somebody to test against and stuff as well as our personalities and other interests. Yeah, so was he a little bit older than you? Because you said he went to he went to school with your brother. Yeah, right? so he was he's a year older than I than I am. So he uh, when I was in grade seven, he was in grade eight. So he was in high school. I was still in elementary school. 
Got it, got it. Yeah, back then it seemed like such a gulf, which is really funny in retrospect. Um, uh, okay, second question. Why, why Legacy? So that was the format that they were using. So it was actually 1.5 at the time, Type 1.5. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and the store was running 1.5 because nobody, very few people, I mean, the vintage scene in Vancouver was bigger than it is now, which is zero. Um, <laughs> but a lot more people didn't have power. So they decided, okay, well, we're going to run tournaments in the 1.5 format. And I wasn't really familiar with Standard at the time. And that was just the tournament that we happened to go to. So that's how we kind of got sucked into it. And I really enjoyed the format at the time. I mean, mind you, it was a lot of like goblins, land still, uh, this and that, because it was still like bizarre. Baghdad was still legal in Legacy. Like, let's be real, that's a format to play. And Mana Drain was still legal in Legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just there were just so many powerful old cards, which actually weren't so old at the time. God, that was a long time ago. So um, when you when you went and played, I mean, you didn't have. Did you have those like? Oh, I shudder even using the concept like tier one decks. So did you? You said for the first year you guys you or you were losing a lot. Was it? Did you did you run those decks or? Yeah. So the first deck that I brought there was a casual like just the best cards I owned dot deck, and got destroyed. So then I was like, okay, well I need a cheap deck like that was like forty bucks or less. So I picked mono red burn, uh, and that was also still bad at the time. Uh-huh. Um. And then I saw a gentleman there, Rob, Rob Manning. I don't even know if he's still around in the city or not. I think I've seen him around uh, like maybe a year or two ago. He didn't recognize me, obviously, because I was like 12 at the time. But um, he uh, he was running Survival of the Fittest. And he was running what he called a rock deck. And I was like, what does a rock deck mean? And he's like, well, it kind of has answers for everything. And I'm like, well, that seems like where I want to be in this format. So he was playing a recurring nightmare survival deck with uh, basically just a bunch of like Genesis and like all these other like grindy fun cards. Mm-hmm. Oversold Cemetery, recurring nightmare, survival, uh, flame tongue cavu, squee, like that kind of like like red green black survival advantage basically. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, a tutoring package. I get to play all these fun creatures. I can do this. This is no problem. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I slowly uh, built up the card pool to build that deck. And I guess over the course of the next mm, year, I ended up buying those cards uh, just through like Christmas money and you know any way that a 12-year-old can kind of earn money. I ended up buying these cards. And I played that deck for, for years until they, until they actually banned it. So I guess I played that deck for like six or seven years. Yeah, I mean, was so it was the toolbox nature of the deck that appealed to you, but also... The, the fact that it fit into your your budget or you felt like you could work your way towards that, right? Yeah, I mean, at the time, Bazaar of Baghdad didn't really interest me or Mana Drain decks. I was like, eh, counterspells? I don't know. I kind of just wanted to... I, I mean, I was young. I kind of wanted to blow up other people's stuff and make them sad, and I wanted to uh, tutor for awesome creatures and kill them that way. So it kind of it was both fun and it was competitive, and I ended up doing okay with the deck at these tournaments when I was allowed to stay long enough. Because even if sometimes, if say I went 3-0 and then dropped the last round because I had to leave, I would still collect some sort of credit money because I'd still be in the in in the in the top little bit because most people ended up leaving as well. So you could end up still collecting some credit and not even playing the last round. So, right. um, so I collected credit, bought more cards, and then I slowly built my collection kind of from there as well as with you know working on jobs and investing and doing that sort of thing. Right. 
And, uh, I mean, it sounds like survival obviously is one of your, one of your, your favorite cards. And, uh, so what, what happened? I mean, what went, cause we met when, when you started playing at Craving for a Game, which is another gaming store. So what happened to Mishra's? Like, how long did you, did you do that before there was a change? I guess I started playing, we started playing at Mishra's in early 2003, maybe mid-2003. Yeah, maybe mid-2003. And we played there 2003, 2004, 2005, and maybe some of 2006. And in 2006, I was already in high school, so I would have been grade 9, grade 10. So uh, at that time, I was taking a tiny bit of a break. Uh, but also, my brother had switched into Star Wars miniatures, and at the time, I was I had also tried to play Star Wars miniatures. So how we discovered Craving for a Game was uh, I was at Mishra's buying packs of these miniatures, and somebody had suggested, hey, there's a store in Surrey selling these miniatures. Great. I'll have to come all the way out to Vancouver. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I go to Craving for a Game, and he's running small magic tournaments as well. So I said, hey, you'd be interested in playing some Legacy. At the time... Uh, the crowd had kind of waned. Uh, Legacy was Legacy, perhaps was not on the downswing, but a lot of people in Vancouver were getting excited about Standard and Extended, mm-hmm. uh, or whatever Extended would have been at that time. I'm not sure. And uh, Legacy was slowly diminishing in terms of numbers on these Friday nights, mm-hmm. and then I ended up stopped going myself. So there was a gap where I was playing a lot of Legacy, kind of with my group of friends, but not really playing at Craving. So I said, hey, there's no legacy in Vancouver. So I said to Buck, the owner of Craving, I said, hey, can we host legacy tournaments? He says, hey, if everybody chips in two bucks, you know, that's fine. We'll put up a price pool. It'll be great. So that's how Craving kind of got started with legacy. And that's how I take credit for restarting legacy in the city because after Mishra's kind of the crowd went away, there was a period of you know, a couple years where we were running, because I think I met you in, what, 2007? I think it was 2007 or 2008, sometime then. Yeah, so kind of in that, between the late 2005, 2006, and 2008, there really wasn't any legacy going on in Vancouver. Small pockets, small groups of us were, I'm sure we're all playing on our own, but in terms of an actual organized community, not so much. So uh james and i took it upon ourselves to mostly me so because i'm going to take credit for it uh, james onions right james onions yeah decided to say hey let's start up this legacy tournament and that's kind of how it started yeah uh so a few questions come to mind um first one is you didn't get into the other formats like standard or extended right no i did not so uh what was the reason to just focus on on legacy for you there was a piece of advice that was always pushed into my head since a young age. Never buy a depreciating asset. Mm. And extended and standard are depreciating assets. You can make a lot of money on them. I'm sure if you do the flipping and the following and this and that, that's fine. And I don't begrudge anyone for making a uh, a healthy profit on doing something like that. But it in at the time, with my monetary situation, it didn't seem like a worthwhile investment to rebuy cards every two years. I wasn't in a position where I could turn over my collection like that, and reasonably I didn't have the time nor access to people to do so. 
So instead, I decided, why don't I just buy into a format that never rotates? And at the time, with my affordability and because of the cards I had already bought, the answer was just to continue playing Legacy. Because the cards never rotated, I could always enjoy them, and there weren't very many bannings that I really had to worry about. Uh, I had seen with the issues with Mirrodin, you know, they were like, oh god, Affinity is too good, ban, 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 ban. Mm-hmm. Well, do I really want to buy these cards and then have them be worth nothing? I just couldn't take that loss. Um when I was that age, so I decided that I would stick with Legacy. And I think that adage of never buying a depreciating asset has has done me very well in terms of my finances. Yeah, I think it's served you really well, as we'll, I'm sure we'll get into in a bit. But uh, yeah, I think that's a very rational decision, right? So it wasn't really, it sounds like it wasn't really some hatred of the different formats so much as a practical decision. Yeah, it was more practical as well as the people that generally gravitated towards Legacy were more along my style in terms of who I might want to be friends with as opposed to the quote-unquote grinders that were looking to uh, play standard and extended strictly for value, perhaps not even for enjoyment. Yeah, we won't name any names, but yeah, those those people, man. There, there are people now like that in Legacy as well. It's like every... Every tournament they show up, we had to talk about this a while back, right? They're look, asking for a handout, like, oh, what can you do for me? Like, how much prizes can I get for doing this? And it's it's less about love for the game, but more about just making a living or prizing, which is preposterous because money is is a terrible part of, like, terrible reason to play Magic. So Yeah, it'd be like, oh, I only play tennis if we can play pickup games at the fucking beach tennis court for fives. Like, what? Why don't you just <laughs> be fucking playing tennis? Like, who gives a fuck? It's $5. Like, anyway, that's a, that we'll get into that afterwards. I don't yeah. want to... Yeah, let's not, wanna... let's not derail. But, but the other question I had was... Um, well, I'll give you... First of all, I'll give you all the credit for organizing the craving stuff because uh, from what I've seen and observed over the years, you're, you're very good at proactively organizing things and, and getting things done when you set your mind to it. And I think, I think definitely you single-handedly... Um, started my magic career um quote-unquote career because if i hadn't met you and and uh and buck and 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 played at craving i probably wouldn't be doing this today you helped me through a lot of stuff so i'm i'm eternally grateful for that um you're very welcome i was happy to do it yeah and and so i my question is you seem to be really good at organizing and kind of getting things done even at a young age like i i couldn't see the 12 year old or 13 year old myself um talking to a store owner or um, or even a little bit later on, you know, you know, maybe even as a 15, 16-year-old kind of doing that. What what do you think allowed you to do that? I mean, it's, it's kind of a flawed question because you are who you are, but I, I'm, I'm wondering how you how you got over, like, shyness or uh, or things like that to, to get these things organized. Well, I have to say it was mostly selfish reasons because I wanted a place to play Legacy. Um, so... Yeah, there was the shyness involved, and there was a lot of, like, perhaps social anxiety at the time to say, like, oh, I have to ask an adult. But reasonably, there was money to be made on both sides, so I just basically said, hey, we can run these tournaments. I think we can get enough people. I think this would be great to bring people into the store. And a lot of store owners, when they hear something like, I can bring you customers and I can give you money, they tend to say yes. Um, So even if it costs them a little bit of time or perhaps space, they're at least willing to give it a try. And, I mean, it's true. We started out with, say, four people, then grew to six people, then eight people. And, you know, maximum we were only hitting 25, you know, some weeks, mostly 15 to 20. 
uh, that was good enough for them because that was way more than they were getting for anything else, like, say, other board games or Star Wars miniatures or whatever. So they could make a little money and bring people into the store so they could buy sleeves, board games, etc. Hey, everybody was happy. Yeah. So I was just looking to make – I was just wanting the owners to see that this was a good fiscal decision for them. So all they had to do was just agree with me and we could get things done. No, that's great. But having said that, I think still there would be, like, for every one of you, there would be like 10 other kids who just end up not playing Legacy now because they're too shy to, to talk up the store or the store owner. So I think that's and great that you did And that's that. probably true. But again, the selfish reason of I wanted it, so I guess I better do this because nobody else is going to do this for me. Right, right. The other thing I want to get into is sort of, you, you, met, you mentioned kind of a little bit of your philosophy of like, don't invest in depreciating assets. Um, can you talk a little bit just for the listeners about, you know, your magic investment <laughs> portfolio and, you know, what you've basically, because uh, you started collecting a whole bunch of stuff and it's, you, you've sort of, you've sort of profited ultimately from all of that. Uh, when did you get into that and kind of what was your initial um, investment strategy and, and kind of what, what kind of things have you done over the years? Just kind of walk me through that. Okay, so I guess it all started when I decided that I wanted to collect a complete set of limited edition beta. Um, so that was a big decision to make when you're 12 years old. Okay, why? Uh, yeah, so so initially what happened was I was looking through a box of cards and I found some beta cards. And I was like, oh man, these look so rich, these are so nice. And the store owner was like, yeah, they're from beta, Like it's like the oldest set. And we talked about alpha versus beta. And at the time, there was actually alpha was not super desirable, uh, just because the corners still, and there were still like a lot of people who were like, "Oh, alpha, ew." Now, in hindsight, I should have collected a full set of alpha, but that's neither here nor there. So, I said, "Okay, that would be a fun project, right? Buy a card once or buy a card every one or two weeks, even if it's a couple of bucks or whatever, and just try to build this set. Just something to do." It was a, a, a goal. So I said, okay. Uh, at the time, I knew the price of the set was probably, I don't know, five grand, six grand. So I said, okay, well, a set of unlimited at the time was just under $3,000. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what? I mean, this is going to take a little while, a few years, but let's do it. So I bought, because of my budget, I bought a lot of the commons and uncommons first and I had to leave the rares till later. Um with, uh, I think, what was the last card of the set? That's a good question. My first card of the set was a Beta Disenchant. And I think my last card of the set was like an Illusionary Mask. Mm-hmm. Or it might have been a Beta Fast Bond. Or it was like, it was one of the kind of expensive, but not super expensive rare cards. It was weird. It was like, it just, I hadn't gotten around to it, sort of. So it was funny. Um, so I just decided that I was going to basically collect a complete set of beta and it took me probably what six years to do six mm-hmm. or seven years uh but i ended up finishing it yeah i guess three-ish years ago three or four years ago and it was a big uh, it was a big accomplishment so my investment strat- strategy i mean we can talk about investing in general or not buying low selling high is a pretty good way to make money um, yeah. not buying things that tend to decrease in value so you don't lose money and just seeing trends. So if a lot of people want to buy something, perhaps you buying that and then selling it to them is probably a good idea. Um, 
I mean, I don't think there's a real strategy here. I think it's just using your common sense. I think a lot of people don't want to put in the legwork to kind of figure out what those trends and patterns are, putting in the risk to say buy something that might go up or might not. Uh, but what I ended up doing is I really liked the look of beta cards, so I ended up just picking up a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, so once I started to get near the end of my beta set, I, eh, I was probably three-quarters of the way through. This would have been maybe 2009. I said, oh, you know it would also be a really cool project? Because my first project was getting a 40 set of revised duels. So I said, okay, I'm going to get a 40 set of revised duels. So I can play any deck I want. Mm. Okay, great, that happened. And I was... 14 mm -hmm. just through trading and buying and this and that and i said okay great what about a second set of 40 duels okay so i did that and then i guess i was about 15 and this was now the beta set was concurrent with this as well yeah. i said okay so i finished two sets of revised duels i've got 80 duels okay well let's go for 100 duels so i got 100 duels and then i said okay well fuck this is i'm, I'm done already i keep i keep hitting these these goals and it's I mean that's great, but I'm kind of bored. Load what I'm gonna do. Okay, so he said, "Well, fuck. What's uh, what, what's how high can I go? Well, I can't afford summer. Um, so what about a forty set of beta duels? So I said, "Oh, okay. Well, I need some for the beta set anyway. <laughs> so why don't I just kill two birds with one stone right. and get a full set of forty alpha beta duel ants? Great. So I started that quest in I guess about two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, and when did I finish? Uh, 2012. 2012. Nope. 20, 2013, maybe. Yeah, 2013. Okay. Um, so it took me a while, obviously. It's a lot of money. It was a lot of looking, a lot of finding, a lot of massaging, a lot of messaging, a lot of hustling, a lot of whatever. But I did it. So through all of the long and the short is at the end of this kind of quest, this saga... I had accumulated quite a few cards, and with my obligations with school, which started in about 2013, I decided that, hey, you know what, is this really worth me holding on to? And the issue was it was very hard to find insurance, especially in Canada, on pieces of cardboard. A lot of companies weren't really interested in insuring, or if they would, they were doing, say, 5% of the total value per year. Well, if you're a student, you know, your collection is worth fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. Uh, and then all of a sudden they come knocking and they want, you know, two plus thousand dollars a year just for insurance. Might not be worth it. Right. So I ended up getting a safety deposit box at the bank, two of them, and I they were stuck a lot of my cards were stuck in there and I wasn't able to actually play with them and it was a real piss off because I want to play Legacy and then all my stuff is so expensive that it's hard to loan out. Because somebody's going to lose it, and then nobody can pay me back because they're all broke bastards. <laughs> or or I have to put it in the bank and take that safety, but without having to enjoy it. So it's like having a sports car that you never drive. The cards are meant to be played, so I made the decision that it's like, okay, you know what? If I can't play them, maybe somebody else will. And if somebody else doesn't, then I'm just going to get the money, cash out, and figure out what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess the ultimate step was last year in 2015 at, at GP Seattle, I decided to move. Uh, I had been slowly moving cards uh, the year previous as well, and I eventually did a big liquidation um, in 2015 just to kind of 
hedge not not only to hedge against say perhaps a reprint or a counterfeit cycle or whatever i just wasn't interested in writing these like what card is going to go up and what card is going to go down i was no longer interested in playing the quote-unquote mtg stock market um because it was it was getting to the point of absurdity um because it didn't need to be that way it was this i mean the magic market is this really weird artificially controlled stock market because there's limited supply and you can buy everything out and it's it's reasonably with enough money you can fuck over the entire system and somebody not doing so already is is extremely surprising mm-hmm. so i think it's only a matter of time with somebody who actually has real amounts of money not like this fucking yahoo who has fifteen thousand dollars on his visa card buys up all the moats wearing his louis vuitton belt thinking he's from <laughs> Hunt, saying oh yeah i bought up all the moats so i could price this, uh, spike the price and the guy probably makes thirty five thousand dollars a year working at walmart like whatever man yeah, like congratulations yeah, go nuts Bo- borrow your grandmother's credit card and then pay yourself 15% interest a year trying to move all these things. Like, like it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I, ju- I just was interested, disinterested with so many nerds thinking that they were stockbrokers mm-hmm. uh, trying to fuck the market or make a little bit of money here or there. And I, and I get it, and I'm not saying that I didn't make money from people making moves on the streets. I'm just saying that I was no longer interested in playing the game with them. Yeah. So I decided that I was going to get out and actually realize my investment because we can all sit here and say that oh my price jumped for my card jumped in price from a dollar to six dollars but until you actually sell that card it's not worth anything so i decided that you know what i'm going to take my five dollars instead of six dollars and i'm going to take it and run and i'm going to turn it into something that i can actually use or like or whatever and i use the money for a lot of different things i Went on a trip to Europe all on my own, and I five-starred a hotel across Europe for a month, and it was great. Um, I And that's where, obviously where I met Julian and a bunch of the European players for the first time in person. Uh, I bought a Porsche. I bought uh, a wardrobe full of clothes. I bought shoes. I paid tuition. I, I did fine. And I do I regret that there's perhaps value that I could have eked out a little bit more? Could I have possibly waited longer, gotten more money, spent more time hustling to get a few more thousand dollars here or there? Sure. And 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 do I regret it? No. Because the lifestyle that I lead doesn't really it, – it's fine. The potential loss of the $2,000 doesn't upset me because I know that tomorrow I'm going to make it back and it will be okay. Right. You're not worried about it, and it sounds like you basically saw where it was going, the game within the game. You didn't like where it was going, and you 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 wanted to sort of trade that into basically good life experiences, right? Like the Euro trip and things like that. Exactly. I wanted to actually turn into something else that I could enjoy and transition kind of... I wanted to transition away from getting my personal satisfaction and getting myself worth from magic as opposed to getting it from quote unquote real life. Mm-hmm. And and there's nothing wrong with going and playing magic and getting some value, some self-satisfaction out of either winning or hanging out with your friends. There's nothing wrong with that. I just I feel like it's toxic if if a person seeks all of their satisfaction and all of their self-worth 
from a single activity because then if you start to say hate that activity or the people that you surround yourself with then all of a sudden you have nothing else you have no way to to validate to do whatever so i just decided that i can still play magic at a reasonably topical level and still get some satisfaction like i can go to thursday night legacy i can play a little bit I can win a few games, I can lose a few games, and as long as I played as the best that I could, I don't care if he ripped the nutters off the top, <laughs> off his brainstorm, and whatever. Like, I have a good life, and I'm going home to a very good life, and that guy who's sitting across from me, perhaps, is being like, yeah, I won, and then sitting in his Doritos-infested apartment uh, with bugs everywhere. Like, I, that's not necessarily the case. I'm just saying, like, I don't have to only be like that's the only thing i have to be happy about is that right. i ripped the force of the will right i can i can do everything else and still be okay with it your life is fine you don't need to um that you're not your tournament record and and or um the cards that you have or don't have right exactly like i just think as long as you played to your technical best and and that's that's what you did then that's fine and if you made mistakes because you either didn't read your opponent correctly or didn't think that what they might have, you know, then you need to learn from those mistakes. And if you don't learn from those mistakes, then you're going to repeat them and you did yourself a disservice by not learning from them. So learn from your fucking mistakes and play your best, but you cannot control the fact that your opponent drew that card. Yep. Unless you're actually cheating and cutting their deck in a certain, you know, whatever. But like you can't control their draws. So don't worry about it. Like stop worrying about it. Yeah. Do you, do you think that you used to be that way? That you were somebody who, whose life was around centered around magic? Because it feels like you're definitely it's definitely not that way for you now. I'm just wondering if you if you look back, does, has that ever been yes. yourself? I think there was a time when I was probably in late high school, and this was when we were playing quite a bit more. Uh, say going to like GP Providence and such. Yeah, where oh, I, I was doing quite well. This is, oh yeah, I feel really good. This is where I get my positive experience from because I had so many other areas of my life where I was getting my negative experiences. So, so I decided that that's where I was going to get my positive ones. And it was, I don't think it was detrimental, but I think it was a, I think it was just a bad idea to have done it that way. So I think, since that point, I've kind of moved out of that particular involvement or level of involvement. Again, was there a particular incident or a life event or something or part of growing up that led to this kind of realization? I think I, I think it was probably maybe sometimes when I was like tilting, you know, be like, ah, oh, my opponent had just you. Why did you draw? You just had. And just, you know, you sit back one time and you, when you, when you tilt off on someone and this person just kind of stares back at you, like, you know, they're just maybe not mortified, but they're just kind of like maybe perhaps a little bit shocked or maybe they're, uh, perhaps an even less dominant personality. So therefore they feel threatened almost as if you're acting like a bully, even though you're not trying to, you know, you're kind of just getting up in their face about it. And when you realize that your actions are affecting others in a negative way, you can kind of introspect and go, oh, fuck, maybe I shouldn't act like this. So I think I probably tilted a little bit too much, as you can, as I mean, I was, mm, I was much more tilty of a player uh, during my kind of, say, late teen years, as opposed to my 20s, for sure. Mm -hmm. 
So I decided that I didn't want to be that guy anymore. So I didn't. So I just decided to not be that guy, and then I wasn't that guy. So then it was fine. Yeah, I mean, I knew you from before, and you used to be a lot... To say a lot more would be an understatement. You used to be a lot more salty when you when you lost. And, and I've definitely seen this sort of um, maturity or change in you, right? It, it's, it's, it's very different. And I, I, think, I think the way I see it from studying people and also looking at myself even is that the more your life is magic, the saltier you're going to get when you lose a match of magic. That's pretty much it. Exactly. And again, you can say the same thing. If your life is tennis, like Vanessa Williams is going to get pissed if she loses a tennis match. She's probably not going to be pissed if she gets fucking pickles on her hamburger and she didn't want them. Like, you know, that's just what it is. Yeah, yeah. And do you miss it? I mean, do you miss having that beautiful collection of cards? So yes and no. So what ended up happening was after I sold out a bunch of my collection, I was sitting on a small amount of money that I decided that I was like, huh, what am I going to do with this money? I had paid tuition, I had done this, I had done that. And you know what? I actually missed a little bit looking at the pictures. Like, just being like, ah, you know, I remember the times when I played this card. And so, you know, there was a bit of nostalgia, right? So I ended up buying back uh, some of the beta rares that I had really missed, like Chaos Orb and Never Rules Disc and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, but you know what? They still sit in a binder, and they still sit in a safety deposit box. And I still don't look at them every day. It's kind of like, even though I do miss them, it's more like I'm nostalgic about those times. But I can be nostalgic in my mind. I don't have to physically possess them. So I can say that in some ways, yes, I regret selling them because I miss, I, miss, I miss having them. And sometimes I can say that, yeah, I miss being the guy with the pimp deck or whatever. And somebody be like, oh, man, these are so cool. You're so awesome. And it's like, oh, yes, yes, I am awesome. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, no, that you could say the same thing. Somebody says, hey, nice shoes, and you feel good about your shoes. Like, yeah. you know. But I think that the value was getting to the point where it's like, what do I value more? That I'm at like three thousand US dollars for an underground sea, or you know, still looking at that underground sea, being like, cool. I never play blue. Why do I own this? Yeah, is that occasional glance at it, like every couple worth of weeks? That in yeah, that from some kind of like vault you have to take it out of, worth the three thousand dollars, right? And the answer that I told that I kind of I wrestled with myself, and the answer was no, yeah. it just wasn't. And especially that if I wanted to play them, which is what they're meant to do as cards, the risk and everything was just so high. Because I mean, if you think about it, say I go to a tournament and I'm loaning out duels, and not only am I loaning out duels, say I'm playing duels. So say I'm playing Bug Delver with all beta duels and loaning out a bunch of other duels to friends. So if I'm playing Bug Delver, I'm playing three seas, two trops, two bayous. So that's what? Nine grand, uh, 12 grand, uh, 15 grand just in duels. Easily, yeah. Easily. So so what's... I mean, we live in a good community and a big place, but there are people who are desperate. So the question is, at what point was I going to get or possibly be accosted or knocked over for... Mm-hmm. for between 10 and above thousand dollars yeah and it's not like it hasn't happened right there's been high profile incidents of theft of that kind of nature over the years exactly and like don't get me wrong 
it's going to be hard to move those cards because everybody knows that they would be mine. And yeah, they'd have to do some legwork and whatever. But it's just like, do I want to put myself in that situation and do I need to? And the answer was no. So, I mean, did I keep some beta duels? Of course. Like, I've still got the decks that I play with are still as pimp as they ever were. But once again, they still sit in the vault and I take, I have to go to the bank the day of a tournament, take them out and return them the next day. And it's still a pain in the butt. But I made the decision that certain I valued certain experiences, which is say playing my Nick Fit or Junk deck at a tournament. That was that was the experience I wanted to have, as opposed to looking at a set of Beta Power Nine in a binder in a bank vault. Yeah, yeah. I think you're totally right. I mean, I don't have any cards either that I, or super valuable cards that I don't actually that I just let sit in the binder. I mean, I mean, you know that I don't play as much magic as I used to. But yeah. but I mean, at least the ones that I the decks that I have, you know, like I I have foreign black border duels and things like that and and I use them still. So it's like, yeah, maybe I only play once a month, but you know, I still get to see these cards and my collection is still small enough where I'm not uh having like a set of 40 FEB duels or anything like that or beta duels. Um, so so I, I can understand that. And then you, you, you kind of made me remember something is that I think we mentioned this on, on Facebook and maybe Julian mentioned it as well, is that I had that realization too last year. I was playing just magic with a friend at a at a McDonald's in Beijing and we were running my decks and at some point we just looked at each other and realized like, do you know how much value we're playing with like in this like, shitty McDonald's in the middle of nowhere, like, I don't know if we should be playing with so much value, like, I'm, I'm sure nobody there knew what it was, but I mean, there's, there's also, there's always a level of risk, right, it's not even like theft, but what if you just, what if a card falls on the ground, and someone steps on it, or what if, uh, <laughs> God forbid, McDonald's catches on fire, or something like that, like, there's, there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of things like that, that kind of run through your mind, and it's, 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 it's a kind of weird, like, almost like magic card collection mortality. It's not even about my own life, but it's about like my cards and what am I doing here? You know what I mean? No, exactly. I mean, and that's, I, I felt very much the same way. I was just like, do I need to have this sitting around? And, and you know what? At the time, the amount of money that I had sitting around in this collection changed my life enough that it was worth me selling. I think if it was now, like as in like, if I was like sitting on that collection today and I was like, Oh, should I sell this collection or not? Well, no, that amount of money to me now is worth so much less that maybe I would just sit them in a binder and whatever. But again, that's also, it depends on your position. If you're making $350,000 a year, perhaps selling your $20,000 collection really isn't worth it. But if you make $35,000 a year and you have a $50,000 collection, well, fuck, then it probably changes your life quite a bit. And I was in the the latter situation where it's like, you know what? I'm in school. I can pay for tuition. I can use the money. I can buy a, you know, not too bad car. Great. I'll, I'll do that. And that's, and I don't, I don't regret it one bit. Sure. I mean, it's all about where you are at that point in your life. So yeah, I, I can see that maybe right now you don't need to unload these cards but at the same time it doesn't matter you're making a million a year or 300 grand a year or 300 dollars a year i mean just having all that value unplayed just doesn't seem um all that productive to where you want to be like it's it seems excessive at least from how i look at it 
it's also insulting because you're keeping cards off the market that somebody should hopefully be playing with, right? And it's like it's like collectors who have vintage Ferraris. And yeah, that Ferrari is worth 20 million bucks. Great. But that Ferrari is sitting in that rich person's house or collection or whatever warehouse and it's not being driven. And that car was meant to be driven. And I think it's rather insulting when somebody takes a car off the road like that and makes it into a museum piece. Like, a card can be a piece of art that can be respected in such a way that is strictly aesthetic. But it doesn't have to be. It can also be played and give that person an experience, just like a vintage car should be driven, whether it's on a track or on a hill climb or whatever. I think there's we can we can we can do everything. So why don't we? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like realizing the potential of this thing, and and also thinking about the community as a whole. I I think that's something that a lot of people who you know spec buyout or whatever they don't really they don't care about that, right? I guess they're willing to to not care about it, but uh, it, it it is a real thing. I mean, we are all kind of connected uh, in some way, so. Yeah, that's. I mean, there are people who are definitely spec buying or companies or whatever who are buying up cards to make a little bit of money, and they don't care about Timmy who wants to play Legacy who can't afford two hundred fifty dollars underground seats. Yeah. Now, is it the job of that particular person to make sure that Timmy can buy twenty five dollars underground seats? No, we can talk about you know the market has a price that everyone will bear and this and that, but there are a lot of people with a lot of fucking money. And reasonably, everybody's going to talk shit and say, oh, the market this and the market that until they're the ones priced out and can't can't win. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then suddenly they become the complainers. So let's be real. It's, it's a big problem. And I think there are a lot of people who want to – there are definitely more people that want to play Legacy than there are currently ones playing Legacy, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who say, I would love to play that format, but it's just too expensive. Right. So, so I'm I'm not gonna restrict supply, especially when I'm not using them. Mm-hmm. So, time to sell. Yeah, and I don't have all the answers, but what I do know about you, Matt, is that from all my interactions with you, is that you've always been very generous. From, from by that I mean, like if if somebody ever needed a a card or or a deck for a tournament, you'd be one of the first to uh, to offer that up. You know, as a as a loan. I think over the years I've seen you really try to get people into the game and uh, you really got me into the game and <laughs> everything I know about Legacy and, uh, you know, I remember like you giving me advice on like, you know, before the GPs, what cards to take and take out and things like that. You know, what's the 15th cyborg card? Um, you also taught me everything I know about pimping. So um, that this is not a question, but I just really wanted to, to say I'm I'm grateful that, that you... Um, you taught me all that stuff, and it was actually at a point in my life where I wasn't feeling great. So I think, yeah, so thank you. You're welcome. I mean, I think it's just about, let's put it this way. I heard this quote specifically about dentistry, and then it's that you can do good while you're doing well. So you can give, you don't have to just earn a very nice salary. You can also give back. And you can you can do good work. You can be in the community. You can be a force of change. And you can still... You don't have to be a pauper 
or a monk to like do good things. You can give back with the wealth that you've accrued or just in addition to that. So what I'm saying is like I did well. I pimped hard. I uh, I learned a lot and I think that it was only reasonable to say give back in some way uh, to a community that was good and needed the help and support and whatever. So like I said, I was more than happy to help a good friend out or somebody that was looking to somebody that was eager to learn. I was more than happy to, to be that person to teach. Yeah. I mean, I was at a point in my life, um, feels like a lifetime ago where I, I was eager to learn and I feel like you really, you really, um, took me under your wing and, and show me a thing or two. And I think that's, that's really helped a lot. I mean, I think about my life with or without magic and it would have been very different. And I, I think in the end, it's just the friendships and the, the community that matter the most more than the actual decks or the cards, you know? And that's what it should be. Cause every activity is just a bunch of people getting together. And like I said, it can be tennis, it can be smoking crack or it can be playing magic. Now smoking crack, probably not so good, but you know, it's all about the community. And if you have a good community, I think you can be, you know, a good old positive force of change or at least a positive thing in somebody's life. Because maybe magic is all some people have. Maybe they're like, like when I was in, say, late high school, like magic was my only good thing. Um, maybe some people need a little more. So being that, that rock, no pun intended, on my end but being that rock for people um when you are able to be that person for another person is is you know the least you can do yeah so what does magic mean to you now that's actually a good question magic is now something that i do on occasion uh to hang out with friends because because my time is very restricted, I have set aside times to go play magic. And I usually don't get to see my magic friends outside of actual magic anymore. So because they've committed that time to come to this tournament, I will also commit that time and then we can also hang out at the tournament. Uh, in terms of what it means to me, it was something that was that basically made a lot of positive changes in my life. Um and I would say it's still a positive force, but it's definitely something that's kind of retreated into the sunset. It's it's uh, an oldie but a goodie. It's um, it's something that I still keep up with. I'm not saying like I don't visit the source uh, every couple of days or say three times a week, but do I actively post? Not that much anymore. Do I post on the pimp thread of any of my stuff that I said? No. It's just. It's something that I I gain greater satisfaction reminiscing than I do actually engaging as much anymore. Mm. So that's and that's actually why we I mean the the Everyday Eternal podcast exists. Uh, all of us are still alive, <laughs> but I was I spearheaded the podcast for over two years. And when I decided that I was not really not, not not interested, I was just very busy, and I didn't really always have the ability to make the uh, sharpest, finest tuned comments because I wasn't perhaps as on top of magic as a whole at that time. Because I couldn't feel because I wasn't at the forefront and because I didn't have all the information, I didn't think that I should be the one casting all the time. 
but it seems like everybody else basically decided the same thing, that they were busy and they didn't want to continue as much. And nobody else really picked up the reins to carry forth. So, like I said, it's a nice thing that I've had in my life. And I still think it's going to be a part of my life for a long time, as long as the game probably continues. But I just don't think it's going to be a major force. It'll be like, oh yeah, I'll go to a Magic tournament three, four times a year, like a bigger tournament, maybe twice a year. And I'll go to some weeklies, you know, maybe once a month. And and that'll be my interaction and involvement. Right. So we'll still see you at some of the bigger bigger tournaments, right? That's yeah, point. even if it's even if it's only just a hangout, um I'll probably still end up playing. But will I be trying really, really super hard? The answer is nope. Because I'm going drinking afterwards. <laughs> That's the right answer. That's the right decision. Um it's really interesting what you said about the podcast too, because uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, all the years that you guys worked on it. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest learnings or experiences that you've had from doing that podcast? I think it's also about drive and coordination. So, like, if you're gonna try and spearhead a movement of some kind, uh, you need to be on top of it. You need to be making sure it's like herding cats, right? You're trying to get you know, five people in four different time zones to try to commit to a certain time to talk about certain subjects and get it all edited and get it out. I think it was a good way to deal with like time management and just like personnel management. Uh, so I think it'll be a useful skill. Like say when I have an office and it's like, okay, we need to do this, 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 and this set a list of things we need to do. Who's going to be doing them? When do we need to do them by? And let's now let's go do them. So, I think I learned. I think I learned a lot. Um, I don't think there were many negative things to kind of take away from it, but I can just say that it is quite hard when people are in so many different places in their lives to kind of bring them all together for long periods of time. So that was just the biggest challenge was the logistics of it. Yeah, I think the logistics and the interest level, because sometimes you can say, "Oh, let's all cast," and then people are like, "Ah, fuck, I'm busy." Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well. Okay, if you're not busy, what time works? And then this and that. Um, I say those were the hardest things. Uh, Content was always there. I think we all had enough to say. It was just like finding the appropriate time to kind of fit us all together to actually go do that. Right. And you touched on this a little bit, but I have to ask, where do you see the Eternal Formats or Legacy Vintage kind of going? I mean... Nobody has a crystal ball, but I, I'm curious how you how you see things, how you will see see things play out. Yeah, um, it, I guess it's tough to say because do I think Wizards is going to break the reserve list? No. Um, I mean possibly, but whatever. Uh, I don't think they're going to break the reserve list. I think prices are holding pretty steady. They're not spiking. Nobody can. Um, I, they just they just can't. Um there aren't enough people who make enough money to continually up the prices. I mean, you got to remember the average salary in Canada, I think is 40, 46,000 a year. And in the States, it's probably some equivalent number. Like how many of those people are actually playing cards? Like, like not everyone is an employee of Amazon. Not everyone makes a hundred K a year and can spend it on cards. Right. Yeah. I just don't. So, I think the Eternal formats will continue because there is interest. And as long as new cards get printed that keep the formats 
from becoming stale. I think they will continue for at least the next couple of years. Um, do I think Wizards is trying to actively kill it? If they are, I think it seems like a bad idea because any avenue you can make money on seems fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there is no pro tour for it. There's no this, but you can, again, you can do whatever you want. You're the company who prints the fucking cards. You can figure something out. I'm not saying you have to hose every single player of yours for every drop of cash that they have, but like there are ways to make money, and we've seen that with the commander products and the conspiracy products and this, that, and the other thing. I mean, they want to make money. They're a company. But there are people with enough passion that want to keep the game going. So I think they'll be able to balance that at least for a little while. And I think even if the game does maybe not die, but like say the, the project goes in a direction that is perhaps not so good for a long enough time, I think there are enough dedicated players. Like I don't know if you remember, but um, remember when Star Wars, the card game, ended? Weren't people making new cards for that for like ages? Yeah, they had the uh, virtual cards, which were uh, printouts um, that you, yeah, they made. Um, I did that for a while, which made me, which when I, which made me appreciate how good Magic was. Like, hey, they're actually printing new cards for this thing, and it's actually real. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe that'll be a thing if Magic were to become defunct. But I personally just see them continuing on as usual because I think there's still enough money to be made. There's enough profit to squeeze. Yeah, okay, they don't make as much money, but again, a few simple changes on their end could make them some more money. So I see that numbers for tournaments aren't dropping like a stone. I think the format is still fine. I think Eternal will continue, but I don't think that Wizards is excited about it, is as excited about it as they could be. I'm really glad that I had the chance to talk to you today, and I hope we can do this again very soon. Thank you, and I hope we can as well. Thanks for listening to Humans of Magic. If you have any comments or feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter, at Humans of Magic, or at James underscore HSU. Please also check out my website if you have the time. It's called writtenbyjames.com. That's writtenbyjames.com. I thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.